is Julie Simon from Glenview, and this WBEZ podcast is made possible with the support of listeners like me. Being a member of WBEZ means that I can listen to great programming from Ira Glass or Peter Sagal whenever I want. Thank you, and enjoy. Hello to you, television friend. So what's your religion, Liz Lemming? Mm, I pretty much just do whatever Oprah tells me to. What you talking about, Will? It's business. We're soldiers. Well, what's the show about? It's about nothing. Honey, I'm home. Or at least a voice of a generation. Advertising is based on one thing. Happiness. Always money in the banana stand. There is nothing wrong with your television set. From WBEZ in Chicago, this is Changing Channels. I'm Leah Pickett. I'm Britt Julius. And I'm Allison Cuddy. There is something about this box that lives in our living room, in our bedroom, some people even in their bathroom. It is our window into the world. On this episode of Changing Channels, we're going to speculate about how Breaking Bad might end with some help from listeners. And we have an interview with Lena Waithe, the creator of 20s, which some critics are calling the more diverse version of girls. But first, as always, we start with the news. Something that I recently discovered is a channel just for millennials called Pivot TV. Now, this cable channel launched very quietly last month. Uh, There's a few shows already on there that are actually pretty interesting. There's one streaming on iTunes that I have seen. Um, It's called Please Like Me. They also have a show called Jersey Strong, which is a gritty New Jersey reality show, maybe like the antithesis of Jersey Shore. Um, Hit Record on TV, which is going to be hosted by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. The problem... I have with this channel is just as a whole, as a concept. Now, it's a channel for millennials. I have a problem with that because I'm technically a millennial, but in the media, millennials are very stereotyped, I feel. And a channel for millennials kind of reminds me of like those big pins just for her because a woman can't use the same pin as a man. Now, I know there's channels for teens and there's channels for kids, but I think that's a different thing because that's a completely different mindset when you're a kid or a teen. When you're a millennial, you're an adult. Yes, a young adult, but an adult all the same. So I feel it's a little pandering in a way 18 to 34 no you need your own channel but shouldn't we share the same space as adults seems like a way that they're trying to figure out how to advertise to millennials because they haven't really figured it out yet I mean the programming that you've talked about um, seems really good please like me I've actually seen I've found through some illegal channels online (laughs) it's an Australian show um, and it's about uh, a young man basically realizing that he's gay and and never really acknowledging it before, even though he had a girlfriend for like two or three years. Um, I I love that show. But but yeah, I agree with you. It's sort of it seems silly. But then I then I also the cynical part of me just thinks, oh, well, they're trying to figure out how to market to millennials because no one has really figured out how to do that yet. Well, I mean, maybe then it's an opportunity for millennials to let uh, networks know how to market to them by either like um, jumping on board with this programming or or raising the kind of protests that you're raising, Leah. And speaking of raising things, there is a show that I have a real problem with on this cable channel called Raising McCain. Megan McCain, uh, John McCain's daughter, has this talk show. 
it's very cringeworthy because it tries to be like not your mama's talk show, and I feel I feel like they try. No, that Isn't is actually that what every talk show tries to do. <laughs> that is actually a slogan of the show, and um, oh. it, yeah, it's very. It tries to be. And it's not totally bad. The first episode is about privacy. The second episode is about feminism. But that's when it goes really off the rails because it's Meghan McCain telling everybody what feminism is. And whether you agree with her politics or not, it it it, it comes across as just trying to be the millennial TV show when I just don't like those separations. I feel like millennials don't get the sort of credit that they we are a very smart generation and a very innovative generation i feel like we're blamed for a lot of things we're the twerking generation we're the generation obsessed with technology and 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 i feel like we actually have a lot more to offer and it's a little pandering to have a channel just for us i feel like inherent what's what's inherent in the idea of um a millennial sort of television network is that it shouldn't really be a television network Mm, you know mm -hmm. I don't even people you know I I have friends who have cable but don't really watch it and then I have friends who don't have anything at all but um, what they always do is watch shows online Mm -hmm. and um, they'll do it legally or illegally Um, and it it just seems like they're sort of missing that that key uh, idea or element as to how millennials consume media which is that we don't consume it in the same way that everyone else does. And just a traditional TV network, which would require probably, you know, people getting uh, cable, which most millennials millennials are not actually paying for, um, just seems, it seems like a, like a no-brainer, like they should realize this. I, I understand sort of the, the, the way this might come across as pandering or sort of just a cynical marketing ploy. But in a way, it seems like, A, it's not the first time that you've had um, networks aimed at particular generations. Um, you can think of some things like MeTV, which is aimed at an older television audience. You have Nick at Night that's aimed at a younger television audience. but Or you have like networks like the WB, the former WB, that were like obviously trying to create programming that would address black audiences who weren't seeing themselves in sitcoms or hour-long dramas, you know. So I I guess, I don't know. I mean, I I don't know that it's necessarily pandering, but also isn't that basically the target audience for most television, the 18 to 34, maybe 45-year-old crowd? Yeah, I mean, I would say that is the target demographic nowadays. It just seems as though shows are often created explicitly for that demographic, like Girls, for example. But it's on HBO, which has a broad, diverse range of programming. And we know it's mainly older white men watching. (laughs) That's the biggest girls audience. Yeah, and not to say that that this new TV channel doesn't have a diverse, um, broad range of programming. It definitely does. I just think that certain shows, Raising McCain being a perfect example, trying to be all hip with it, when... I think that it's sort of insulting the intelligence of of a lot of millennials. I feel like I'm being – I'll speak for myself as a millennial. I feel like I am being marketed to. I feel like it's a dumbed-down marketing. That's just my personal opinion, but we'll see. I think one thing with, like, millennials, too, is when I try to think of who we are as a generation, I feel like – the biggest sort of or, or the common thing among millennials that we're so different. I feel like there's almost like a, like a fractured identity with millennials and that there's the media idea of millennials and then there's like everyone else. And and I think people are really very much into like their own personal identity. They're really into um, uh, being themselves, even though they say we are conforming. I feel like people are very much like, you know, 
I am a so-and-so, so-and-so type of woman or, you know, um, but, but I don't think, I don't know how that would really translate to a network that's very, you know, trying to, to aim towards one idea of millennials. Or maybe that's what makes this kind of marketing ploy then land bad with someone like you, Leah, because it's like, no, I, I don't want to be considered part of a group. Maybe that's part right. of the millennial identity, the rejection of a kind of generational identity. That is a good point. I, that, is, that is a resounding theme. We don't want to be labeled. We didn't make the rules, so why do we have to live by them? What more can I say? it's our turn, shouldn't we rewrite the book? Never sent a nude picture to anybody. You received one? Uh... So Saturday night, it's time we speak up. This ain't your mama's talk show. Raising McCain on Pivot. Well, you mentioned dumbing down, and uh, <laughs> my new story kind of has uh, both a dumbing down element and a, and a going big, which is this um, plan to do a reality TV show on Mars. So there's this group, Mars One, which is a collection of kind of science types, Dutch primarily, who plan to establish a human settlement on Mars in 2023. And The Guardian, I think, called it reality meets talent show with no ending. So they've opened up applications. They've gotten over 100,000 applications. They're going to pick four candidates, start training them in 2015, and in 2022, I think, send them to Mars. And it's been called a one-way ticket because, um, A, what would happen to you living on Mars for an extended period of time physically and then be the likelihood of being able to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere without dying seems like slim to none. But I, I mean, and, and so it's, it's these science people who are interested in the idea of establishing a space colony, but they have a collection of ambassadors who are involved as well. One stands out, Paul Romer, the co-creator of Big Brother. Who's, oh. So the ambassadors are the people who are going to like talk this up and promote it. Um, another one, though, that struck me is Mary Roach, you know, the author of Stiff, but she also wrote a book about Mars. And so I don't really know how involved they are in this, but it just seems like this crazy. You talk about cynical marketing. So this is going to be like, you know, a multi-billion dollar endeavor if it ever takes off. But so far they've gotten what? With people paying 38 bucks for the application process, they've raised almost four hundred grand. You know, they've gotten all this attention. It's it's really kind of fascinating. That's not surprising to me at all, and I do think it's fascinating. Imagine a reality TV show on Mars. If that were to ever happen, I think it's totally possible. But we do live in this age of cynicism. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is that uh, forty days of dating, which is this online social experiment between two friends who dated for forty days to see if they would fall in love at the end of those forty days. I find both of these people completely insufferable. They had blog posts where they talked about their feelings and. I don't find any of them to be likable, but they did sign with Creative Artist Agency, which has led many people to believe there's going to be a TV show and they were just milking it so they could become reality TV stars or what have you. Uh, so there is that cynicism there of everyone just wants to be a reality star. But the fact that it is going to be in a space colony, maybe I'm just a space nerd, but you would about watch that happening. it. You would, I would watch, watch it. it. That's what yeah, you're saying, totally. Leah. I can't believe it. I would. I would <laughs> watch it. Well, what I mean, so you said that it would essentially be a one-way ticket. So, how long would the show air? Do they? Do we just watch them until they die? 
I'm getting like Truman Show vibes here and yeah. it's kind of scaring me, but I'm also intrigued because the Big Brother aspect, which I, as from if we go all the way back to the beginning of the season, I'm a big, big brother fan. And it's so. like Truman Show light in yeah. a way. You know, they do plan to send other candidates as time goes by, but I think the initial four will be there for maybe a decade on their own. So there's been all this, like, I mean, part of what makes me laugh about this is the intense media scrutiny. Could this really work? Which maybe is an interesting question to ponder and, you know, like laying out all the different psychological challenges that would be involved, which basically boils down to you're going to be in two small rooms with three people you didn't choose to be with. You're leaving your whole life behind, more or less. I mean, I can see the kind of excitement that would draw you to get involved in this, but it feels like a kind of Mars Ponzi scheme. Like, give us this, like, application fee up front. It's never going to happen. Because, like, how can you control what's happening there? I mean, with Big Brother, we know that the producers are literally just, like, on the other side of the the studio walls. But in Mars, it's sort of like, oh, this guy just killed everyone on Mars. (laughs) Sorry to like jump. No, I was gonna say it could get so dark, and maybe it's like the morbid side of me that like, oh my gosh, like I have to see this happen, you know? But it it is right. It is sort of the ultimate in. It takes the reality television premise, so in some ways it feels like a a spectacular joke, right? It takes it to its most extreme limit, which is what everyone, as you guys were saying, are trying to do. Um, On the other hand, it does feel like, and I mean, I I love reality TV, but. The, the capacity of reality programming to just exploit human stupidity seems to be like front and center in this whole concept and the way it's rolling out. But yeah, I mean, the the lag time between Mars and here. So if you did send out a distress signal, it would take over 20 minutes to reach Earth. And then like, how long would it take for someone to get there and help the colonizers? So I mean, it seems like more of a conceit or, you know, maybe a, a, a major thought experiment. But there's a lot of people who been willing to put their names to this so one of the people who applied um, and you can read their applications online said that you know look how impressive that would be on your CV that you (laughs) went to Mars so maybe that's the ultimate you know you're going out in a blaze of glory but I mean, leave it to reality TV to go where, you know, no man has gone before or NASA won't go because the ethics of sending people on a one way trip into space is is a line that nobody seems willing to cross other than. <laughs> well, I don't want to lay it all on Big Brother's lap, but, you know, uh, we've seen a who... lot on Big Brother. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem, doesn't seem ethical. It doesn't seem ethical to send those people out there uh, supposedly to die. But. Ethics of reality TV would be a whole other discussion. Are there even ethics at all anymore? Well, they all sign those waivers that say things like, you know, oh, if someone in the house kills you, it's not MTV's fault, you know? (laughs) So, I mean, you know, reality TV, it's kind of, they're at a different level than how everyone else is sort of living life and and playing with morals and ethics. Well, maybe that's, that's the genius of reality TV, yeah. Why would I like to go to Mars? Uh, it would be an adventure. Um, I've always been fascinated with space and exploration. Uh, when I heard the, that Mars One was doing this, I felt like I needed to do it. I was inspired to do it. Uh, there was a lot of things going on in this planet that uh, need some serious inspiration, and I feel like we um, could do that. describe my humor? I would describe it as a Jim Carrey meets a Jerry Lewis on the side of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. 
Yeah, get down. Do it, do it now. Send me the balls. Yeah. Honey, honey. Two weeks ago, we discussed the commonalities of uh, popular television shows that we relate to. And, you know, I thought when thinking about it, I thought that a lot of the shows that I really enjoyed were very sort of small concept. Um, I first heard the phrase from cultural critic Michael Barthel from Bullet Magazine, and he was talking about whether or not, um, you know, he was talking in reflection of bunheads and whether or not bunheads would be successful and whether or not it would get renewed. As we know now, it has not gotten renewed. It didn't really find a place on ABC Family, a network that has a lot of shows like, you know, Pretty Little Liars and The Lion Game and Twist It, which are very high concept, at least for teen television shows. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to think more about whether or not these sort of small television shows um, have a place um, in this sort of in the realm of, of how we think of television now, because I think of reality shows, which are very, very, very low scale. And then I think of shows like Mad Men and Breaking Bad, which are very sort of upscale and high concept and whether or not shows that fit somewhere in the middle can still be successful. Yeah. Can we just define that a little bit more? Because I mean, when I'm thinking about small TV, so um, is it that the setting the characters find themselves is small, like confined in some way? Or is it about the production value? Like, are these yeah, low budget? Like, what are what, what defines a small show? Not like the production value. Um, I was thinking more along the lines of um, the premise of the show is small. So... Um, like girls is like I was saying it's like probably like the most successful example it's a show about four women living in New York City right done you know and like but it is like it's got high production values right and yeah it's just that it's not about like the meth industry and the chemistry you know so it it doesn't have all these elements going on like this kind of like with Breaking Bad this unlikely scenario a chemist teacher finds out he has cancer and turns into a meth dealer and then it just takes that premise as far as it can go so it's totally about the kind of concept. So small means in some way more down to earth, real world. I don't know. And I, I have a hard time sort of defining that too, because like Louie, for example, is like a small scale show, but I feel like it's also a show that you can't really put into a box that you can't really pigeonhole as, as being, cause there's, there's high concepts in it, in the humor. And it's like, some of it is like, it's such a low brow show that has these unexpectedly high brow moments sometimes. So I don't know. I, I think the cool melding of the two. Is it about characters as well? Because I read this throwaway line about Mad Men, which just cracked me up. It really cracked open the, this show. The, the, the sort of genius and the failing of that show is that, you know, the biggest boondoggle it got away with was pretending that characters on that show have arcs. Like you're actually following a character through development. But really, that's not the case with Mad Men. Like the scenarios change, but the characters remain the same. And, you know, it is just these kind of like um, sort of, they channel currents of the era that they're in, or at least as conceived by our current moment, right? You know, so they, they're they not really fully fledged characters in the way we think of. I mean, so is that, like, I think about Bunheads and what we found appealing to that show is it seemed like you the characters unfold over time. You They change, you understand them. They reveal themselves, which I think is part of Breaking Bad. Yeah, I mean... 
Madman's Madman is actually a really good example of that and that the reason why I I think the reason why I really love Madman is pretty much exclusively about its uh, concept and what it's trying to say about feminism and about the changing environment of the 60s and also sort of human nature and whether people can be strictly good or strictly bad and mm-hmm. and things like that. And um, not necessarily, I mean, I do love the characters, right? I do love uh, Peggy. I do love Joan. But... Um, it's not just about the characters where I think that with um, these sort of small concept shows, maybe it is really about the characters and not necessarily about uh, everything that's happening on um, the show, which is why I think I wouldn't think of like Louie as like a small concept show. Mm-hmm. It's It seems just extremely experimental in a mm-hmm. way that I think that most like small concept shows just can't be. One show that I always like to think about um, when I'm thinking of uh, a small scale shows is NBC's Parenthood. I don't know if you all watch that show, but it's mm-hmm. been on for a long, I mean, what feels like a long time at least. And it kind of just always falls through the cracks. It has amazing performances um, by uh, Lauren Graham, um, Mae Whitman. Um, That's her daughter. She's yes. great. Yeah. Just like fantastic performances, but it's just about a family in California living their lives, right? It's it there's not this this huge overarching sort of like theme or or narrative that's taking place with the show except maybe sort of like growing together as a as a family. Um Parenthood is actually like one of NBC's most successful shows, um but no one's going to, you know, no one's really doing recaps of it on the entertainment websites. No one is, um, you know, talking about its themes and its and and what this shirt meant and what, you know, what this, you know, character holding this book meant. It's just more of a show that you watch and you tune into. Um, NBC yeah. always sort of like they sort of like throw it into the schedule, but then it always gets like eight or nine million viewers, which is better than than most of their shows. That's a really interesting point, that these small-scale shows are very popular. They have big fan bases, but the critical acclaim tends to go to shows that have these, that are more about the themes than the characters, and make for a good recap, because you can talk about all the theories and the themes. And uh, on a show like Parenthood, it's like, well, what would you really write about besides how much you love the characters? There's not like a, a bigger, overarching meaning to it all. Well, it is weird that the more the deeper the story and characters you get, maybe the less opportunity for interaction there is. Like in the vacuum of character development, you know Don is going to be the same at the end of Mad Men as he was at the start. Maybe there's the opportunity to engage with, you know, what are the cues of the the 60s that the show is picking up or not? What can we say about like the style? The style of that show is kind of triumphed over the substance of it, I think, as it's mm-hmm. gone along. But I wonder, I mean, because when people talk about small TV, there's this sense that, oh, there's no room for it anymore. Or, you know, that th- th- these like bun heads, it doesn't get the opportunity to grow and develop an audience. And yet everything you're saying suggests that, you know, I mean, people write a lot about Heart of Dixie or Suburgatory, you know, I mean, those are kind of like small concepts, small shows that have found an audience keep going on the CW and on ABC. And and it doesn't seem like TV has turned away from these kinds of shows. Is that is that your sense? Maybe I mean, it's like critical, critical perception of it and and its popularity in the media. So there are shows that we watch and there are shows that the media 
talks about and there's shows that, you know, sort of like blow up because reality shows we definitely talk about, right? Like Honey Boo Boo, they write, you know, like long form essays about it, but no one's writing a long form essay about Heart of Dixie. No one's writing a long form essay about parenthood, but people watch it and people enjoy it. Is it because it has to be radical in some way? Because I do think that the reason that Girls has like had more popularity than maybe a show like Parenthood is just because Lena Dunham is so out there and, you know, she's naked and all these crazy things are happening. And then on Breaking Bad, it's just like week after week shockers. Um, Mad Men is so different than anything we've seen on TV before. Does it have to be so strikingly different and radical to garner that attention? I think definitely. I mean, because it's not just, I mean, if, if the networks are not the the safest place for some small shows, we have all these other outlets now and you can look at what people are doing. You know, we've talked about web series and definitely small shows, slice of life shows are, are flourishing there. And, and some of them are even going to, are crossing over to the networks. We're going to talk about that. But Netflix has definitely, you know, if you look at them, they've, they've bet on, Big, high-concept series, House of Cards, Orange is the New Black, you know, that that I think is exactly going to draw those eyeballs and get people, oh, this is something new or different, even if it isn't. Even if, as I've said many times on this show, girls is like sex in the city redux, you know. Maybe there's a little more nudity, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of nudity on Sex in the city. A lot of more unconventional nudity, I would say, in girls, uh, yeah. twisting it a little bit. So really, I think... Parenthood is a great show. I've seen it. I like it. But it's not entirely different than family shows that we've seen over and over. It does borrow a successful model in in a lot of ways that people enjoy watching. But it's not something radical, different that we haven't seen before. And maybe that's why it hasn't gotten as many eyeballs or as much attention as it deserves, I think. I think that's a really great point about the idea of shows that are fitting within sort of a singular concept versus shows that are, as you said, like radical. Um, and maybe that is the issue is that to be a small concept show, you can't really be radical um, at all. What the hell were you thinking? Dad, what was I thinking? I mean, what? What were you thinking? I told you to stay at home, and you just took off. Yeah, well, you were being totally unreasonable. Well, I don't care if I'm being unreasonable, Hattie. You're 15 years old, and you live in my house, so you do what I say when I say it. Really? I do whatever you say, no matter what? Yes, no matter what. Okay, so if you tell me to shave my head, I have to do it. Yes. If you tell me to murder somebody, then I have to do it. Yes. Dad, Dad, if you tell me to burn this house down, then I have to do it. I'm not going to do that. If I tell you to burn down the house, you have to burn down the house. Speaking of small shows, uh, one show that has gained some popularity uh, online is 20s. It's not actually a show. It's a pilot presentation. So what we've seen is just a couple episodes of a pilot script. But many people have described it as the black version of girls or the more diverse version of uh, girls. And for this episode of Changing Channels, I actually got the chance to talk to Lena Waithe, who is the producer and writer of 20s. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Very good. Thank you again for for doing this interview with us. We are so excited for uh, your program, so excited for the possibility of your program, rather. Um, And yeah, so, I mean, it it sort of blew up everywhere, especially on a lot of social media websites, on Twitter, on Tumblr, which is where I first saw it. Just to start, if you could tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the premise behind 20s, you know, where it came from, 
what was the central idea behind the show and what are you trying to say to a larger audience? 20 sort of came out of just sort of me living in Los Angeles and um, having not a sort of typical career and hanging with um, very interesting and fun and cool uh, girls, really. And being sort of, um, I don't know, not the typical 20-something black girl, I guess. I wasn't, I would sort of watch TV and I would definitely see black women on TV, but they didn't seem to represent that middle ground that I think I live in. I think a lot of my friends live in. So um, so I, I actually got invited to an early screening of Girls, which they were showing the first three episodes, and Lena Dunham was there, and it was like sort of a Q&A thing, and I remember watching it and really being moved by it and thinking that this was definitely going to be a cultural moment and just thinking how fantastic it was. And, and of course, in the back of my mind, I thought, how awesome would this be if, there was sort of, if, these, if these were black girls? Like, what would that look like? How would that be? How would it feel? What would the music sound like? What would the wardrobe be like? And there would be some differences, but, there, but in terms of what the girls are going through, a lot of it would be sort of similar. It's just sort of how they, they deal with it. So I sort of saw that, and I, and I sort of, the idea was sort of planted. And then uh, I, sort of, I mentioned it to a couple um, executive friends of mine, and they were like, you should write a pilot. You should do it. And the show really is very simple. It's funny because some people ask me for a synopsis, and I always give them the log line. It's really about three girls who live in L.A. who are trying to get their lives together. They happen to be African-American, and all of their cultural influences aren't all black. Um, they are only influenced by black culture, and they like own record players. They watch Downton Abbey. They go to Amoeba and buy vinyl, and they like vintage shopping. And they're just girls who are, you know, in their twenties trying to figure it out. So that's sort of the basis of the show. You had, you know, you had mentioned that um, you were sort of like surrounded by this this great group of like young uh, African American women. I mean, what were some of your own experiences, if you don't mind sharing, that sort of found their way into this pilot that you created? Um, well, I, well, there's one character, because there's three characters. There's Hattie, who is the lead character, um, who is the one with the vlog, uh, who sort of is very, you know, she does, she lacks tact, and she um, doesn't always have everything, all her ducks lined up in a row, and she's, I guess, a thinly veiled version of me. Um, and then you have Nia, who is based on a girl named Nia, who is, to me, not of this world. Like, she is really born in the wrong era. Like, she, I always tell her that she's Diane Carroll circa 1963. <laughs> like, she, she is that. She is a lady in every sense of the word. She is, I mean, quaffed within an inch of her life. I mean, she's never, a hair is never out of place. She speaks very eloquently. And then uh, Marie is sort of this biracial girl who works at CAA and has dreams of being, you know, the black female version of, um, of uh, like, like the character on Entourage. Ari um, that uh, Played by Jeremy uh, uh Piven, right? right? Yeah. yeah. Um, like so, he so she she's sort of that the she's sort of a combination of girls that I know that um, that want to be in the business, but want to be on the executive sort of like man, managerial type side of it, and uh, and they are in the business, but they're sort of in the corporate part of it, which is I think kind of interesting and kind of cool. So those three characters sort of make up me and a lot of my friends. So there's, I mean, it's really. <laughs> the most like autobiographical thing I've ever written right. because it is sort of taken from pages from my diary, really. And I think that's sort of the best thing 
you can do. It took me maybe about, I don't know, four or five pilots to get to this one, to really be this open and honest about my life and sort of my friends and my unhealthy relationships and just sort of where I am in the world. But I, I finally got there, and I just sort of was able to pick and pull from my experiences and some from my friends' experiences, and it sort of became this, this sort of little world that we call 20s. Great. Um, can we go back to something that, that you kind of touched upon a little bit? You had said, um, you sort of mentioned this idea of, of working or not working in extremes. So, um, you know, not creating like perfect characters, but then also not sort of creating these characters who are really over the top and, and kind of ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, what to you do you consider to be the middle ground? Do you consider these characters that you've created to be the middle ground? And, you know, do you think that this sort of like representation of black women will translate to larger audiences? I mean, yeah, well, I think it's a great question. Uh, I, I think they are in the middle. I, that's, I, I can only write, you know, char- I, I don't write characters in extremes. I don't. I can't. Now, mind you, there are a lot of films and TV shows that are, are sort of done in extremes and some things are sort of aspirational. But if we really look at some of the things that have spoken to us as, as a society in terms of film and TV, they really all come from things that are very honest and true. Um, it's just, it's just, a, it's just a fact. I mean, the, those are things that really strike a chord. Um, and so, I think for me, this is, this is, I'm, I feel like I fall in the middle, and these are sort of based on my experiences. So they do, they fall in the middle for me. But at the same time, I can't write every black woman's experience. It's just right. impossible. And I think that's why it is difficult for black writers, black creators, black directors. We always sort of get, you know. We sort of always get the shorter end of the stick because somebody's always unhappy. There's always going to be a black person that's going to look at something and say, that's not my experience. Mm-hmm. It happened with the Cosby show. You know, where people go, hey, I mean, I, I don't live in a big house. I don't have a mother and a father. I don't, you know, live that way. It, it, yeah, but the thing about the Cosby show, the root of it was a, a, a loving family. Because um, I didn't, I didn't, my life didn't reflect what you know that that either but the thing that i could hook into was the love and respect that that family had for each other so to me what i hope people because not everybody lives the way i live um and i don't expect them to but what i hope they connect to are the friendships um are the sort of that that sort of that that sense of being lost that you sort of have when you're in your 20s but there's also a sense of knowing that you have and it's sort of a weird sort of push and pull that you're dealing with because you you're sort of you're sort of still a girl but you're not yet a woman it's sort of that weird space that you're in and it's also that time when you're away from your family and your friends become your family and they become your lifeline they become the people that you spend your most important you know hours with so um i mean to me the extremes i always sort of talk about are you sort of have love and hip hop on one side and scandal on the other, mm-hmm. and I don't I don't discount either of those shows. I think they're 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 very important. I think people respond to both shows, um, but I think the thing is is that I'm not always Olivia Pope on my best day, but I'm not Jocelyn on my worst. And so I think sometimes you want to see a character that can sort of be both. Like I can be I can have an Olivia Pope moment, um, but I can also fall into you know, something that's maybe a little bit more stereotypical just because that's life and that happens. But I just, I personally believe that we don't have that middle class black girl on TV anymore. It's just just not there. It's either too aspirational or it's sort of that playing to the lowest common denominator, which I think is sort of, I think coming more from a marketing standpoint where it's easy to market those images of black people where it's uptown versus downtown or poor versus rich and i just sort of feel that that we've literally and figuratively lost the middle class 
it's sort of we're losing it literally <laughs> sort of in terms of the economy, right. but we're also not seeing it reflected in our um, in our media. And I think that's unfortunate because the truth is I think that there is still sort of this budding middle class that's also this sort of um, hipster kind of interesting culture that's sort of uh, coming about from that I'm a part of and that my friends are a part of were sort of those 80s babies that were raised on, you know, Spike Lee movies and then we went to sometimes like you know, predominantly white institutions for college and then we're living in sort of like New York and L.A. and we have these unique lives that we live that really aren't being represented. And, um, and I think that's sort of what I'm trying to portray. Okay, so, I mean, let's talk about, you know, getting the show made itself because... Yes, please. Yeah, I, you know, you, you, you've presented the pilot presentation um, online, and that's mm-hmm. where it's really sort of blown up, but ultimately your goal is to be on, like, actual television, correct? Yep. And so, I mean, why is the, the actual medium of television still important for you, even though you've sort of gained this really big following online? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean, to me, I knew I wanted to be a television writer since I was seven years old. I've always known that. Mm -hmm. Ever since I saw A Different World and heard that theme song and watched it with my family, I knew that whatever that was, I wanted to be a part of it. And I think also television is a very important medium. It just it can't be denied, even from these little facts that we hear in terms of like you know when you with Happy Days when the Fonz you know got a library card. I mean like I mean kids all over the world went and signed up for library cards like the next week. Or there be you know a different world and the impact that had. I mean the the, the enrollment rate for HBCUs went up like seventy percent. I think that for anybody that thinks that television does not still have an impact on our society, it's just it's, it's not true. I mean whether it be you see Twitter filling up with, like, Breaking Bad, spoiler alerts, or people talking about scandal or Downton Abbey sort of taking America by storm. There's something about this box that lives in our living room, in our bedroom, some people even in their bathrooms. It is our window into the world. And it's also a, a, a window that a lot of different countries have um, as a way that they sort of view us. Because if you go to Africa, you see, you know, pictures of like whether it be Tupac Shakur or pictures of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or, or the Cosby show. It's like this is how people view us. So I love the web. I actually had a web series that I was doing called Hello Cupid, right. uh, which I was a co-creator of. And um, I, I, I think it's great. I mean, hello. I mean, um, blank black girls say, I don't know if I can curse, um, you know, <laughs> sort of was my my entryway into sort of seeing the kind of power that the web has. I think the web is extremely important. Obviously, it's it's sort of uh, helped me with your white people and now this. But to me, it's always been important that we still have representation on television. That is extremely important uh, because it also, I think, is important for people like myself or Issa Rae to be present at the Emmys. You know, we should be present at the Golden Globes. We should be present at the SAG Awards, things like that. I think it's extremely, extremely important. And I'm all about sort of playing outside of the lines and sort of doing things outside of Hollywood. But I won't stop knocking at the door because the minute we stop knocking, they kind of go, okay, great. We've, we've sort of, they, they've tired themselves out. And I just sort of won't do it. I won't. So I'd like to thank Lena Waithe for being on Changing Channels. We really enjoyed you and we are really excited to see the future of 20s. Awesome. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. Hope you have a fantastic day. Thank you. You too. Why is everybody acting like I never had a real job before? Because you haven't. Yes, I have. Handing out flyers for free screenings isn't a real job. Those people are intense. We have 
activate. You only did it for two days. That's because when I'm on my feet for more than two hours, I start to feel faint. No, it's a rare condition. It doesn't even have a name. It's called lazy. I can't have a regular job right now anyway. I have to focus on my show. Mmm. I don't know if you have enough viewers to call it a show. It's more like a video diary. That's the meanest thing anyone has ever said to me. And you lived a charmed life. For the next few minutes, we're going to be talking about Breaking Bad. So spoiler alert for everyone who has not caught up with the last few episodes. We talked a few episodes ago about how some Breaking Bad fans were mad because uh, Apple had broken the final season in half. And instead of the season pass covering all the episodes of season five, they only covered the first eight episodes. And so people were going to have to buy another season pass to watch the final eight episodes. So one fan... Noah Lezebnik of Ohio is suing Apple Inc. He says um, under California's consumer practice laws that this was a deceptive and unfair practice. Basically, what he's saying is Apple did a bait and switch that they talked about. This season pass gives you access to all the episodes in the final season of Breaking Bad. Season five, they still talk about the final season as season five, but then suddenly turned around and said, no, you're going to actually have to pay like twice to get access to all this. So it's a pretty compelling suit. I I do think that he has a good case because he makes a point, and I'm paraphrasing, that you wouldn't go to a football game and then get kicked out at halftime and have to pay to enter again or go to an opera and at the intermission, oh, sorry, you have to leave. And he wasn't given all of the people who went to iTunes to see the Breaking Bad final season weren't told that this was going to happen. So uh, I think the suit has merit. In fact, I think he could even win. Well, I don't know if I'll go that far, but um, we are going to go out on a limb um, by ending with uh, thoughts about how Breaking Bad might actually end. So you'll remember we asked you to weigh in last time. We have a hotline set up for you, 888-915-9922. And we actually got some people weighing in with their versions of how they think the series is going to end. Greg, I think, speaks for a lot of fans with his theory. I think that ultimately... uh Walt ends up dead. Uh, He doesn't go to jail. It's not the cancer. I think Jesse has to do him in. Another theory that we heard has to do with Skyler. Stephanie and Flossmore had this to say. Well, I love this show, and I, too, will be sorry to see it end. I think his wife will do him in. Uh, She has too much to lose. She has to think about the children. Um, her sister, she's lost the love and probably respect from her sister, her sister and her brother-in-law, and she will be hounded forever no matter what happens. Um, hopefully Walt has or will let her know that he buried that money, so she'll have to sit out for many, many years. But as long as he's alive, she'll have a problem. And this final theory actually threw us for a loop, kept me extremely shocked for minutes after we first heard it from John in Palos Park. Uh, Vince Gilligan uh, loves to play with time, so he throws things in and out of uh, past tense and future tense. You've already seen the ending. Last season, the first episode, he was 55 years old. That was two years older than he was up at that point. He's headed towards 55 right now. At 55, he goes to a diner. He walks He walks away from there, gets into a car loaded with guns, and drives off down the road. He's a desperado. Yes. Okay, so I like John's theory, and we've all seen that scene. Um, but I'm not sure I buy the desperado. I think it's an open—you don't know what's going to happen. It's just one of the flash-forwards that isn't fully resolved. Am I wrong? Right, and the thing with Breaking Bad is there's so many ends that you know aren't left untied for very long. And this is one that 
is untied, so a lot of theories have gone around it. For me, what I love about Breaking Bad and also what terrifies me about it is the Shakespearean nature of the show. It's very tragic, and I feel like it just can't end well. The tragedy will prevail. How that tragedy is going to unfold, I'm not sure. Um, I do like a lot of theories out there that say that Jesse is going to be the one that does Walt in and then takes on the Heisenberg role. Um, I think they have switched roles in a lot of ways, so that would be really interesting for me, the son taking out the father. I keep thinking about that, um, the floating pink teddy bear and like this sort of like burnt object left behind. And I think that because this is a show that is completely invested in the concept of annihilation, like whether it's of your character, of your um, moral codes, of or just of physical space, I mean, sort of the annihilating space of the desert, mm-hmm. that no man will or woman or child will be left standing. Everyone's going to be blown <laughs> to smithereens. You see an explosion yeah. happening. It's all going out go out with a bang literally so um what what are your theories we we'd love to hear more before there's only a couple more episodes right left in in breaking bad so give us a call our our hotline is 888-915-9922 you can also hit us up on twitter hashtag changing channels or you can email us changing channels at wbez.org what do i have to do to make you believe why'd you kill yourself walt This whole thing dies with you, right? That's what you're saying here? Is that Hank should just let it go and wait for you to die? Well, maybe you should just go ahead and die then. That is not a solution. No, it's not a solution. He's not getting off that easy. Jesus, Hank. And the same goes for you if you stick with him. Changing Channels is a production of WBEZ Chicago Public Media. Our executive producer is Andrew Gill, our intern is Mickey Capper, and our digital content editor is Tim Akimoff. You can subscribe to this and all of our podcasts and iTunes. Be sure to rate and review us while you're there. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at WBEZ. Find more information about this and all of our podcasts at WBEZ.org. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information available at chicagopublicmedia.org.